Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Tim Burrows, founder and editor-at-large at Mumbrella and author of the upcoming book, Media Unmade, on Australian media's most disruptive decade. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Dara. Nice to be here, finally. Well, I guess the introduction is lead, uh, thought leaders and practitioners, but you've had a quite a different role in that you're also an observer, a commentator, and a journalist uh, looking at this industry for how long is it now? When did uh, you get into marketing journalism? Well, marketing journalism would have been, I mean, that, that has been pretty much getting on for two decades now. Um, so I guess I've been a journo for a little over 30 years and writing about the media and marketing world in some way for about 20. So that was initially writing about kind of the media agency scene and media sales scene in the UK via, you know, a quick sort of diversion to Dubai and been here in Australia for nearly 15 years now. Right. And I imagine over that time, some things have changed, but a lot of things stay the same, don't they? Yeah, yeah, look, that's very true. So, for instance, things that stay the same, this might be familiar to you as well. Whenever you go walk into an advertising agency, uh, they always tell you you should see the work that's in the pipeline. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it never seems to quite come through at the other end. They also always tell you, and I guess this is with my trade press hat on, they always tell you, we're not very good at doing PR for ourselves. Yeah. So that's always that's that 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 that's always been a constant. Um and I suppose things that, that, that have been different. Definitely one thing that, that feels different is even 15 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, it felt like media agencies had the upper hand, really had the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe the pendulum swung against them a bit now. Maybe they have a little bit less influence in the ecosystem overall. Like it's it's swung even further towards the marketers, I would have said. It's interesting, that observation, because I think part of it is the dominance of what some people call a duopoly. You know, that they are, they've been so good at building relationships and and inviting marketers to work with them directly and capture so much of the media budget that it has had that effect of reframing media agencies. What are the other influences, though, that you think has changed that? Is it the the big thing about trust and uh, transparency or is there a more fundamental change? Yeah, that's definitely, on, on a global level, that's definitely one of those issues, you know, the sort of... You know, everything that was said in the US, I suppose, four or five years ago now mm-hmm. about um, murkiness in, the, in, the, in the, the, the buying chain, both within programmatic, but also traditionally. That, that hurt. That, that, that definitely hurt trust. But very possibly deservedly so, because, you know, there were, there were definite examples where, you know, there, there, there were unacceptable behaviours. So that was part of it. Um, I think maybe to your point on the, the rise of Google and Facebook, 
in Australia, I suppose, thinking back, one of the things that surprised me at the dynamic when I first got here, having written about the media agency world in, in, in the UK, was there, without question, the media agencies were on top in terms of the relation, the buying relationship between agencies and media owners. Whereas I got to Australia, and at that point, the TV networks were so powerful still, if they decided they didn't like a particular buyer or a particular group, often it was a new arrogant person arriving from the UK, they could shut them out. You'd see examples where they just had to leave the role because they, they, they'd they come in too hard. Whereas I think because of the rise of Google and Facebook, maybe the TV networks aren't as powerful as they once were. And maybe that's no bad thing from that point of view. Yeah, I think you're right in that the Australian market, and especially the media market, would always be considered quite different from the UK and even the US, right? But I think that the rise of Google, Facebook, you know, Amazon, you know, we're getting more and more of these big tech companies offering advertising inventory in formats that, you know, Blind Freddy could buy uh, means that it, the media market is becoming more global. It is becoming more consistent because they're having such a big disruptive influence on it. And I think that that's part of the change that you saw. It sounds like uh, you, this is all part of the preparation for your uh, your upcoming book, uh, Media Unmade. But yeah, look, and that's more in fairness. That's more about the rise and and, and um, changes of ownership and everything else on the media owner side. So, funnily enough, although I do talk about the programmatic chain a bit, I don't go that deeply into the world of media agencies. Okay, um, that might come later, perhaps if it's an interest. Probably, I'm not sure it's an interesting enough topic for a general audience. To be honest. Well, that's true. You know, that the the thing about the media owners, and especially the media owners in Australia, for you know, most of the 20th century and the start of the 21st century, is that they were so high profile. They were like the media owners in the, the US, for instance, that uh, were celebrities in their own right and, and wielded huge amounts of power. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have the Kerry Packers, obviously, would be the example people always go to first. But let's remember, you know, the absolute pirates like, you know, Robert Maxwell circled around Australia yeah. trying to trying to get his hands on Fairfax, for instance. Whereas now people sort of say they aren't quite the same personalities. And I suppose that's true. Um, but well, they were again. called media barons, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was this sense of, you know, royalty and yes. power that was associated yeah. with it. I suppose the one... The, the one character that I watch with a lot of interest now is Anthony Catalano, who at the moment is Australian community media. And, you know, he's a big personality. He came from, you know, not much more than a decade ago, launching, you know, that one kind of uh, real estate title in, uh, in, in, in Melbourne and, and, you know, taking away so many of Fairfax's revenues before coming back into the fold only to have a kind of second blow up and go out again and you know now he's doing this so he's got the potential to be our sort of I guess maybe our last media baron you know even if he becomes like the you know the the the, the king of regional Australian media so they are out there and they have got personalities which is which is part of what we love about uh, advertising and marketing but your journalistic career didn't start in marketing you actually started out as a cadet uh, on, a, uh, on a newspaper. Yeah, group. yeah, local newspapers. I mean, I, I the the UK word wasn't cadet; it was more cub reporter. Was the uh, was the was the UK word? So I was. Yeah, I mean, looking back now, I'm so glad I came in just when I did because I just got to glimpse the old world. 
So, you know, I, I, for my first few months, I trained on a manual typewriter because that was how we, you know, wrote our news stories then. You'd have, you know, three little bits of folio paper with a little bit of carbon paper between them and you'd, 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 you'd wind them into your manual typewriter and you'd write your two paragraphs on it and your version of kind of word processing was just reshuffling the order of the, 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 the typed paragraphs. You know, the, uh, you know, I remember the excitement in the office a few weeks in when we got our fax machine for the first time. You know, it was, it was that period. And then we, we computerised very shortly afterwards. You know, also in that first job, I got my first mobile phone. So it, it all happened. A big brick, was it? It was. It was almost exactly the dimensions of a house brick. So <laughs> you, you sort of like, you have to wear a big wax jacket with a poacher pocket because it's the only way of carrying it around. So, Tim, was journalism something that was, you know, your passion or was it one of those things of oh I need to go to university what would I do yeah well look firstly I didn't go to university so we had a hack oh. since I was 18 right um uh, but I think it, it was something which always fascinated me so when I was you know the UK system was you you sort of prior to university you do two years of A levels and although I was doing three A, a levels which were nothing to do with journalism there was also a sort of you know kind of sort of more sort of a voluntary kind of course which was around journalism. And I guess that was just enough to prove to my first newspaper that I was interested enough to try me out for the job. Yeah. And we were very lucky in the very late 80s that jobs were booming in the UK. It was just before the re- sort of early 90s recession. So that I was lucky they trained me on the job and sent me off, you know, on the kind of journalism courses, which now people have to have to find a way of funding themselves. So... You know, one of my many privileges, that was one of them that I was very lucky to, to get in and be trained. And what is the attraction of journalism? You know, if you think back to the person you were then, three decades ago, you were sitting there, you were a cub reporter, you were doing rounds, you were you ended up a chief reporter well, on your first job, so you rose fairly you know, rapidly, I guess, through the ranks. What was it that really motivated you and got you up in the morning to go and hunt the stories and write them up? Yeah, look, I I mean, it's a, it's a complex answer. I mean, it's never boring. That's one of the good things about most forms of journalism is you don't do the same day over and over again. And if you do, then it's probably time to move on. Um, you're certainly on local papers or if there's a connection back to the world I write about now, you're writing about your own world. You know, local papers, you're writing about your community. I think that was why I ended up writing back about media and the marketing world, because again, you're writing about your own world. But yeah, so certainly having that stake in it, I think was important. Um, You get this, I'm using the word privileged again, which is interesting, but um, you get this privileged front row seat where you get to, hey, on the local paper, sit in the council meeting and have a, you know, there are a couple of chairs just for the reporters from the local paper, sit in the in the press box at the local court. You're obviously representing your readers in the community and that's why you're doing it. So you're in this privileged position where, you know, you get special access in some way because it's your job to tell the story back to your community. Uh, and that's something which, um, you know, particularly when you're, you're, you're kind of, young and naive, which generally you are when you start in journalism, that's something which um, which is quite exciting, I think. You know, it's that sort of, it's, you get that, I don't think journalists should be, should aspire to be insiders, but you do get a sort of insider's view. Well, I like the, uh, the metaphor, I guess, of the front row seat, 
you know, that you do get invited into places, except that often I imagine people are putting on a performance as well. You know, you must, especially uh, focusing on uh, media marketing and advertising, that uh, you would have had that frustration of people always want to put their best face forward. They want to uh, present to you the story that they'd like it to be. Uh, even though it's not necessarily the best story to be told or the right story to be yeah, told. Yeah, look, it's definitely a double-edged sword because I think about, you know, I, I spent a period, five or six years, writing about the medical world, writing about doctors. And on the one hand, there's obviously far more naivety around how media works and, you know, that side of things. So maybe less of a less of a kind of, you know, appreciation of the value of having a profile. So people won't, you know, rush, put themselves forward in quite the same way. Um but on the other, they're also, you know, probably less, I guess, artful in the, the picture of themselves they construct. So, yeah, so definitely you, 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 you get that construct. But I think, you know, the, the, the challenge for whatever sort of journalism you're doing is to think about who the reader is, what their work, you know, when you're writing in a professional context like Mumbrella, what their working life is about and what, you know, what, what, what questions they need answered. So... You know, we, you know, with Mumbrella, it always really comes back to the question of why is this important to a marketer? You know, that's the sort of, we write for the whole media marketing world, but the bullseye is marketers. So that's always a question you've got in the back of your mind when people are putting up this performance. So, you know, if you're, um, you know, if you're an agency putting your best foot forward by playing you the real, it's, well, you know, what was the effectiveness of this campaign? You know, what's the evidence it actually worked or whatever? But yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, you know, it, 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 I guess the charitable version is the truth well told. <laughs> I think that belongs to an agency. I wanted it? to say McCann, but it yeah, was it's no, it is McCann. It was McCann, yeah. McCann said truth well told. Yes, yeah, so in- and I, I like the. Um, do you remember the monkeys did their? They created that TV, that short-lived sitcom about advertising, Thirty Seconds. Yep. And the slogan of that agency was the truth well sold. <laughs> I'd forgotten that, but I remember it was, uh, they did one season, didn't they? Yeah, it was such a pity they didn't get to do a second season because I, I, the thing is I, I watched it again three or four years later and it really held up well, I thought. You know, they, they told the stories, there was a great little arc for, this, for the season, so I guess it was just a narrow view and it's hard to find when it's only on Foxtel. I don't think it's yet turned up any of the streaming services, has it? No, but, no um, not that I know of. Yeah. I remember it did come out on uh, DVD. You could, uh, you can get the season one wow. on DVD. Yeah. In fact, I think I've got a copy of it somewhere. I'll, uh, I'll hunt it out. And, well, do you know, uh, I, I had a very, um, not sure what the word is, probably realistic um, experience of what it's like to advertise during that show because um, we thought, okay, early days of Mumbrella, um, what perfect, what more perfect place to advertise Mumbrella for the advertising world than to buy some ads on Foxtel. So we actually bought an ad in the first ad break of the first episode. (laughs) And in truth, we probably did some contra or something. But I went along to the Monkeys Had a Launch Party to watch it live on Foxtel in a a pub in Surrey Hills. So, of course, I was there. I was thinking, yeah, my ad's going to come on. And, of course, no one paid the blind bit of notice to it. As soon as the ads came on, <laughs> everyone piled to the bar, the drinks are roaring, and not a single person in the in, in the pub even noticed our ad. And I thought, yeah, that's the life of an advertiser. You've got no, that's really what's going on. Everyone's making a cup of tea in the ad break, aren't they? 
So um, you mentioned the early days of Mumbrella. You were uh, editor at um, B&T and suddenly you're up. And I remember we were sitting at uh, Cook and Archie's having a coffee. A very fine uh, Surrey Hills breakfast place. I guess it's still still going. It's still there. It's still there. I walked past there only uh, two weeks ago and it's still there. But um, uh, And you said, I'm starting a new... Uh, trade media, uh, and it's called Mumbrella. Get it? And it was everything under the marketing umbrella. Media and marketing, marketing sorry. umbrella. Media and marketing umbrella. <laughs> the two umbrella. Right. So uh, what was the, you know, the stimulus? What was the motivation? I mean, you could have easily stayed a, uh, a jobbing uh, journalist editor working for uh, another company. It's all, I'm always fascinated what the motivation is to step out on your own. Yeah, looking back, I'm not sure it was any one thing. Some of it was, it felt like there was a bit of an idea and a bit of an opportunity. So, you know, I mean, the initial idea we had wasn't quite what we ended up doing. It was a series of, you know, I thought more narrow newsletters so we might do one just for media agencies because that was the world I'd written about in the UK. You know, one for people in PR, one for people in ad agencies. And then we'd need some sort of receptacle, SEO receptacle, to put all of this content. And the overall umbrella receptacle, you know, was, was, was going to be what became umbrella. And then, of course, you know, the idea of doing kind of PDF newsletters was, in fact, a terrible idea. So <laughs> luckily, we didn't even start that bit. You know, we, we, we started with the receptacle and then that was the bit that took off. Um, so that part of it was the idea. Uh, part of it was, you know, talking to former colleagues who'd already struck out on their own um, who wanted me to come on board. So yeah. that was um, Martin Lane and Ian Wakeling, who... who were working in the travel world, actually. They were publishing uh, backpackers thing called TNT, which, you know, unless you hang out in backpacker pubs, you probably wouldn't see, but is a, you know, a sort of magazine for for um, visiting backpackers. Um, but they'd already launched a sort of uh, trade title for the travel world or the adventure travel world. We're looking to just spin off something else. So we said, okay, let's do something in media. So there was the opportunity. And with that, I, I guess because I was joining a small company, it was a new company, but was at least on its feet slightly, that probably made the risk feel a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I was probably even then naive enough not to quite realise how much of a risk I was taking, you know, because it meant sort of, you know, giving up quite a nice job and a nice salary and basically going in on half of what I'd been on before. Um, but, yeah, so looking back now, I think I probably should have been more scared than I was. <laughs> Well, you did come across as very, uh, you know, you had enthusiasm in buckets. And I think... Had? Are you saying this is in the past tense? (laughs) um, Let's see as the conversation progresses. But, you know, the interesting thing for me was that it was an innovation at the time because almost everything in the marketplace, even... uh, uh, Simon Canning's uh, page that they used to put at Adweek, wasn't it? Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, used to be printed and then distributed. B&T was printed and distributed. Ad News is printed and distributed. It was the first time that someone had sat down and said, hey, we live in an era where publishing can happen all online. I mean, that must have, in hindsight, it seems absolutely normal. 
was it part of the allure? Well, look, I think, yeah, I mean, because, yeah, if you think about that environment, definitely, you know, even, you know, the time I, when I was on B&T, we would have judged our main rival as being Abnews. And the thinking was very much as if this was like a new form of, you know, an old form of publishing where once a day the email would drop and you'd build up towards it. So I was very lucky for one thing that we used to, if we had a good story, we'd sit on it until ad news came out. But unfortunately, they sometimes had the same good story and they would be sitting on it until we came out. So you'd have this kind of standoff <laughs> that would go through till five o'clock at night and finally both sides would give out and send out. And there'd be no email sent all day. Yeah. So just by... You know, one of the things that we do with Umbrella was to sort of think of ourselves as, okay, always on, always publishing. Yeah, there's an email as well. Um, but, you know, remember to start off with it was weekly and then three times a week. But I was trying to do the website the whole time. Yeah. So just by ticking over during the day, you know, in 2008, 2009, that was actually an alternative to what else was going on. So, so you know, so I, I you know, that proved to be good for us wasn't I guess that wasn't the plan it was just it proved to be a gap you know and I hey yeah the timing was really fortunate because it was just a sending email got really cheap yep. and I remember you know just going in when I was at B&T and talking to an agency about rebuilding our you know very basic email sending service and then quoting us like 30 grand or something and yet you know when we started Umbrella, we we just signed up for a service that was like 30 bucks a month yeah you know so so email got cheap WordPress just became mature enough to be able to publish on. So again, basically a free platform and Twitter came through, yeah. you know, so that became a great way of getting our sort of, I guess, early adopters each day to join in the conversation, come onto the website. And again, because we had a, 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 a comment thread, which was a relatively new thing. I mean, I think AdNews and BNT probably had means of having comments, but they didn't really get them. Whereas you would find that you tweet it, that would drive people in to start the conversation. And then by the time you sent the, the email, the conversation had already started. The conversation would go where the conversation was. So the reason I asked about the technology is the fact that you seem to also take a very different approach to the competition in regards to news. I mean, it was very much news of the moment, but it was also thought-provoking. It could sometimes be controversial, um, and, but it wasn't like um, that every story was considered, well, where's that going to fit in the book? It was more along a timeline than it was this cycle of, you know, every two weeks or week or, or month yeah. of putting stories in a book that seemed to make Mumbrella quite fresh and you know, confronting in many ways mm. for the industry, and especially an industry that is so obsessed with the way they look. Yeah, and I suppose looking back, you know, I, I definitely, for instance, you know, when there was a something big in our world breaking, it was a lot of fun to be able to write three updates in the same day, you know, which obviously wouldn't be something you'd do in a newspaper or magazine. So silly things like, you know, the... When Naked Communications, which um, you know was a was a really great strategy agency for a while, when they did their hoax campaign on behalf of Witchery, where they created the fake video, the the girl hunting for the man who'd left his jacket behind. I mean, it sounds so mad to people who weren't around at the time on how big a story that became 
in the mainstream press as well and what a potential scandal it was that it could be a hoax video on YouTube, you know, perpetrated by a brand lying to the public. And it was just such a huge story for a couple of weeks. But, you know, we'd sort of run with it, you know, sometimes two or three stories a day on the development. So I, I, I guess in the end, the medium became ideal for doing that sort of mm. thing. Well, because that's another point is that, you know, a lot of trade media... And, and, you know, Mumbrella was part of the trade media for marketing media and advertising. Uh, very rarely got coverage in, you call it, the mainstream media, except that Mumbrella seemed to have this habit of provoking or at least stimulating the mainstream media to take interest in, in the category. You know, often uh, the, the News Limited, they were, News Corp and Fairfax at the time, would have business sections, but very rarely would cover media that much in those sections. They were more sort of hardcore. But Mumbrella, on quite a few occasions, actually broke stories that ended up running all over the place. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, sort of, and maybe remember we were at the tail end, and, and maybe we're returning to it again now, where for a while there were thriving sections or thriving-ish sections, if that's a thing, in the kind of, you know, in the Metro paper. So there was, there was a while where, you know, the Australian's media section on a Monday was actually quite good for a while, For if you were in the agency mm. world. They, they broke agency stories and that sort of thing. You know, you had, um, uh, there was a journalist called Julian Lees to do something similar for the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and they would have, you know, days of the week where the section would. And I suppose that's the thing is, you'll, whether, that, whether that stands the test of time even now as having a section on a certain day, Mm. Um, is a is is a question, but but yeah. So they so I suppose where maybe we got a bit picked up by I guess, and again it was probably the online news. It was the news dot coms etc. Would have been yeah I guess when we spotted an angle and it was a good story. Um, and look, and I suppose yeah, one of the things is is I guess you know I spent a lot of my time, you know, my training as a news breaking journalist. Um, and it was very much, you know, it's always been through the filter of who the audience is. So, you know, when Mumbrella tells a story, it absolutely is and should be about, you know, the professional world. So we, we don't talk about we the audience, we talk about they the audience, mm. you know, when we're talking about the public. Um, uh, but even through that, you know, I guess I've always been able to spot a story and break a story which might get picked up elsewhere. Yeah, because I, I was wondering whether it's because you didn't define yourself as just a trade journal that you actually saw it as a news journal for marketing, media and advertising. Yeah, look, that could be true. Um, yeah. And I think it's an important distinction because yeah, yeah. I've had these conversations all around the world yeah. with lots of different trade journalists. Yeah, look, I think if I if I had to sum up the biggest area where maybe I, I disagree with some of my peers about what the trade press should be for is some have this sort of slightly sort of vague definition that we work for the industry we should work in the interest of the industry and therefore we shouldn't talk down the industry or you know whereas you know often I feel that's a smokescreen for you know they're writing for the big end of town and the people who actually advertise with them and you know the the, the individuals and the brands that is Whereas I suppose my, you know, the way I've seen it is we're working for the readers, not our advertisers. You know, we're very 
you know, we feel very lucky and we're very happy to partner with our advertisers, but primarily we're working for an audience. We're writing about what should interest them and be important. And hopefully we'll build up an audience as a result, which we can then people help people talk to, which is, you know, the nature of that advertising. Whereas I think there are others who would think first about their advertisers. And that's not to say one is right and one is wrong, but, you know, if I, if I had to make the argument on why we did well finding an audience quite quickly, it was because we were very clear that we were going to prioritise our audience and hopefully the advertising might come along. We weren't going to in any way be kowtowing to the advertising. You know, it would always be, would the audience be interested in hearing this? And therefore, if they are, we're going to tell that story. Which is the traditional uh, separation of church and state with inside publishers, you know, that editorial is about telling the stories and that there's the commercial part and never the twain shall meet, which a lot of people would say has become old hat because many organisations have just collapsed those. There must have been times during that the Mumbrella years when you were breaking stories that upset some of the uh, the sponsors, the advertisers that you worked with. Yeah, and look, I, I guess one of the, the benefits of being one of the owners was that you could take a very long-term view. You know, you didn't have to worry about, you know, this week's or this month's or this year's numbers, um, so long as you were viable as a company, of course. So that meant that we could always take the long-term view that the correct strategy is to build up a reputation with the audience that you'll do your best to tell it like it is. Um, and if that has some short-term costs, in the long term, you'll have a bigger audience that trusts you more and that'll pay off. Um, so there was always a commercial strategy behind mm. having that approach. And of course, you know, we, 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 there'd be internal arguments, you know, and it would be the job of the sales team to try and persuade us and try and make the, make the case for their clients. And it would be the job of the editor to help them if they could and to be very sorry if they couldn't. Now, part of that has to be the commentary, which uh, have it, you've mentioned it earlier that Mumbrella was famous for the allowing the readers to comment anonymously. Um, it was so controversial for so long. Is there any time that you... Uh, would change things? Have you ever had regrets about some of the comments that you went through or or just the policy? Yeah, look, I... Yeah, that, that, that's a, a really good question, particularly about, like, is there anything you would change? Because, of course, each day you were moderating, you know, and it wouldn't just be myself, the editorial team and whoever the editor of the... or the news editor of the day would have been where judgment calls were being made on any given comment, you know. So and it's all very well to set a sort of set of rules that says, you know, you won't let people be personal or personally attacking or whatever, but people would find ways of sneaking things in, in any way, you know. So, I don't know, there'd be some sort of illicit relationship going on in an agency between two executives. So it would be sneaked in with an illusion in the you know, in the name or of the so The people commenter. in the know would yeah, know. Exactly. But, yeah, exactly. And and sometimes that stuff could sneak past you. And it was, it was so some of it was about just de developing an instinct for that sort of thing. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's funny, like, so it's a number of years later, but, you know, I remember there was one where somebody had, uh, an agency had 
yeah, I think the way it had come to life was it'd been written as a sort of think piece for clients about what the effect of all of the job cuts at News Corp and Fairfax in 2012 were, um, which, you know, it was one of those kind of glass half, trying to make a kind of PR-ish glass half full point of, at least with fewer journalists, we'll get more stories in. And of course, once it went to the clients, they offered it to Mumbrella. And, um, you know, it was, to to an audience which includes journalists, it, it seemed a much more kind of opportunist, Um, You know, very kind of sort of like harsh, callous point of view, Um, you know, and what happened when that came in was I looked at it and did what I always did with opinion pieces, which I would write a tighter intro and a tighter headline, which got to the point, arguably to the point of tabloidness. Um, without, you know, but I would always still feel was true to the the argument, would send it back for approval took two minutes later for the approval to come through. So, I, I'm, you know, you, you wonder in that case whether actually it was looked at properly, mm. but, and then posted it. And then, of course, all hell broke right, loose. Please. And the author of that piece, you know, was a villain in the eyes of the journalists. And suddenly, you know, there were 200 comments. And you can imagine how stressful that is for a relatively junior person. Now, where does the duty of care lie? Is, is it with the publication? Is it with the boss who sent it through and then approved it? Um, you know, is it with the person who stated that view in the first place? So I still feel conflicted with that one because if you look back at the comments now, wow, you wouldn't want to be the person who was the subject of them. And again, one of the, the that's a good example where we would often say to people is you should see the comments that didn't go up because of course you're always drawing a line mm. somewhere, and it's the ones that are either side of the line, the ones that just get up, are the ones that cause the outrage. And the ones that didn't quite get up are the ones where no one, you know, no one will ever see. And the ones that absolutely didn't get up are the, you know, the kind of the really terrible ones. So, so yeah, so I, I mean, what, what, where I always really valued it was as a way of people being able to punch up at their bosses. You know, people who weren't, you know, couldn't say what they really thought on LinkedIn because it would be career limiting. Yeah. Um, you know, would be more junior at the the agency and they knew that the kind of to your very early point that everybody puts puts a front forward, the ones who knew that that was kind of bullshit. So that that was at its best. And at its negative was when it didn't contribute. And I think you often as a journalist you have this sort of instinct you don't want to censor. Yet actually there is a difference, you know, when you're curating a conversation, it's your dinner table, you can invite who you want. So probably over the years, we began to go in that direction anyway. There is a bit of the uh, Peter Parker principle, isn't there? Because, you know, with that great reach and power that you built, there does come a responsibility. Mm. The thing is always knowing with any sort of censorship that where to draw the line and where to consistently draw the line. Because, you know, the other thing is if on some stories you happen to go too far one way and others the other way, you're then open to criticism about inconsistency and uh, using your power and influence as the publisher to push certain agendas. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's true. And I think particularly when you talk about commentary, you know, what you want is I don't really care about an agency boss's ego has been damaged. Fine. But what you don't want are people who are less powerful, who, you know, 
are genuinely upset and hurt on a personal level. Mm. Um, it, it is an industry, though, and, and I'm sure, you know, um, I worked in the medical mm. industry, so I'm sure you may have had something with the doctors when you are But it is an industry that takes uh, criticism uh, really badly, often takes it really badly. And I know that from personal mm. experience. Mm. I've been someone that's uh, on many occasions criticised particular aspects of the industry. And yet criticism is one of the few ways that you can ever improve, isn't it? Yeah, like I I always say, you know, the argument I would always use when people were criticising us for being, you know, if they sort of portray us as being anti-industry, you know, we would always argue we're in favour of a better industry for everybody. Mm. And sometimes that means, or often that means challenging the status quo. Um, you know, and I think I would sometimes position, maybe now, but certainly in the past, some of our fellow trade press as being more in favour of the status quo, mm. um, you know, which is a perfectly legitimate <clears throat> commercial position to have as well. Because you've you've taken on a few issues. One of them I mentioned earlier, which was media transparency. Uh, you've taken on uh, issues around awards and, and honesty in awards. There's been quite a few uh, topics over, what was it, 12 years? Yeah, we started in late 2008. Yeah, so 12 years of, of reporting on Australian uh, media and marketing. What's the the issue that was closest to your heart or the one that you were most passionate about? And I, I would say the one that you were willing to, you know, take the battle to the, uh, to the, the wall. Look, I mean, the one that's gone furthest for me in my career actually wasn't with Mumbrella at all. It was in my first job writing about the media for Media Week in the UK where we were passed a letter um, which had been written by a large newspaper group to the boss of a still privately owned media agency setting out exactly... uh, how much payments would be made if a certain amount of business would go their way, which included the phrase, Andy, I want to make you a wealthy man. And I'd only, when we got that, I'd only been the editor of Media Week for about oh, a couple of months, I reckon. And my um, my publisher at the time, who was also CEO of the business, who I now realise looking back, the business was in some trouble at the time as well. But... You know, I didn't really know him that well because I was quite new, but, you know, we were, I'd been brought in to kind of reboot Media Week. And I thought, we got this story, but they're, um, they're threatened to go to the High Court to injunct us, saying this is a confidential document. Um, you know, so are we okay to brief, you know, barristers and all of this thing? And, he, and you know, he, he just instantly said to me, if we give in on this one, we'll give in on every one. Yeah. So we stood our ground, and at the last... They backed off and they didn't go to court and we got to publish it on the front page. Um, so that was the one probably I was the most proud of because it, hey, look, it, it spoke absolutely about transparency and murkiness in the industry and all of those things. So, um, so It's I think a that- great story, by the way, Tim, because it actually proves that the whole issue around transparency in media isn't a product of, you know, the last five or ten years, that it's been going on for years and years and years been going on, I mean, probably since media agencies became a thing. Well, you know, uh, 
Jay, Commodore J. Walter Thompson was one of the first. I'm sure he used to hang around the New York Yacht Club shaking hands with the media owners and uh, collecting his cheques or brown paper bags, you know, of cash. <laughs> wow, that's quite a claim. You'll have old JWT turning in his grave. Well, let's, uh, let's hope so. Um, Tim, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time and, uh, and sitting down. Uh, to share your well part of your journey, I'm sure you could actually write uh, a volume of uh, volumes of books on this because you've got some great stories to tell. Well, I guess I'll only get um, invited to write another volume of the book if uh, people buy the first one. <laughs> and uh, that's due out uh, later this year. Due out in July. July, fantastic! And it's called uh, Media Unmade. Uh, about Australian media's most disruptive decade. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing that. Um, well, just one last question. Uh, of all the stories, you've shared one that you got to publish, but of all the stories uh, since you were uh, founded Mumbrella, what's the one that you could never run but you wished, you really wished you could? <laughs>